Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening, and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today, Ed Young, the Pulitzer Prize-winning science writer, discusses his new book, An Immense World, which explores how the animal kingdom communicates. Ed is a staff writer at The Atlantic magazine, and his coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic won him the Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting. He's also the recipient of the George Polk Award for science reporting and the author of I Contain Multitudes, his previous book, which became a bestseller. Speaking with Ed on the podcast today is Chrissy Giles, global health editor at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism in London. Let's join Ed and Chrissy now in conversation. Ed, congrats on An Immense World. The best thing about it, I think it might be the first book I've ever read that references G-protein coupled receptors and insane clown posse. <laughs> right. My sources are diverse. Right. And that, I think, proves that Ed Yong is a man for all people. And that's why we're very excited. Let's start with a nice, easy one. Just a quick one. Um, what made you want to write this book, following up from your first book? And why now? Mm, okay, great question. So there is some connective tissue behind these uh, that, that links these two books. So I Contain Multitudes was about the microbes that share our bodies and our lives that we don't see, we don't perceive, and yet have a huge influence on us. Um, An Immense World is about the extraordinary ways in which animals sense the world around them and the um, cues, the, the stimuli, the information that they're picking up that we can't perceive. Both of these books are about um, hidden worlds in their own ways. They're about sides of reality that we aren't tapping into. And that, you know, when we when we start to understand a bit more, um, we we learn that the world is in fact richer and deeper and and just weirder than we had previously realized. Um, so that's kind of a running theme in, in a lot of my work. It's an idea that I, I like exploring in a lot of different ways. Mm. Um, the idea for An Immense World actually came from my wife, um, Liz Neely, who um, did, uh, started a PhD in uh, sensory biology. She was working on the um, ways in which coral reef fish see colours. Um, and in, in one rainy London uh, evening uh, several years ago when I was bemoaning the fact that I didn't have any good book ideas um, for a, for a, sec- a follow-up to Multitudes, um, she said uh, she gave me a bit of a pep talk and suggested that the senses of other animals might be a good good thing to try and explore. And she is always right. So 
Um, so here we are. Well, I mean, I wish I could be as constructive a wife as Liz sounds, because I think sometimes, you know, we are in a bit of that place of like, what do I do next? And sometimes it's the ones closest to us who see the clear answer. So congrats for listening and congrats for picking an excellent wife. So like I said, I really enjoyed the book and I think there was something really beautifully philosophical about this core concept of the umwelt which, you know, it's something you describe as the kind of sensory bubble through which every living thing perceives the world. You know, everyone's probably now going to read this book and look at their pets and look at the birds and think about things differently. I also found it really kind of really beautiful to think about how other people see the world. You know, you only have to go to a DIY shop with your other half to realise we do not all see colours the same. You know, there are differences in the world in how we perceive things, but the book really stretches our understanding of the senses, perception and even like what the earth is so can you just tell us a little bit more about what this concept of umwelt is and how come it became like such a central core to the book yeah so the word umwelt um, is german for environment um, but the scientist who popularized it uh, jakob von Uxkel, the 20th century zoologist he didn't use it to mean an animal's physical environment um, he used it to mean its sensory environment that's the sights and sounds and smells and other bits of information that it can detect but that other creatures might not be able to and this idea the, the umwelt idea um, tells us that uh, all of us is trapped in a, a in a in our own little perceptual bubble. We we think that we are sensing everything. Like the the senses give us the very powerful illusion that our perception of the world is complete and total, and that is an illusion. We're actually only perceiving a thin sliver of all there is to perceive. So Van Uxkel, um imagined uh, an animal as a house overlooking a garden, and all the windows of the house as the animal's senses. Through those windows, you know, it looks out and gets a particular view of the garden, but it's not a total view. And other houses around the same in the same neighborhood might get a slightly different one. That's what it's like. Um, you know, if you were if I was sharing this room with um, a dog or an elephant or a platypus or a snake, we would all be in the same physical space but we would all have a radically different experience of that space. And that, that's the Umwelt concept. And that's the central idea of the book, that you can go on these great adventures just by thinking about what other creatures in the world around you are experiencing. Yeah, that's great. Thank you also for saying, I'm just going to call him Jacob, because I think not only has he got a surname that would score massively in Scrabble, it's also one where I'm like, those letters in that order make no sense to me. I've um, definitely mispronounced it, to, to be very clear. Um, I have I mangle his name in a slightly different way every time I say it, and my apologies to all German speakers listening now. Okay, well, I you, you starred it out. I thought it was great. Um, you've ordered the chapters in in sense of kind of the stimuli. Mm -hmm, yeah. And so tell us a little bit about how that came about. Yeah, I think, um, the, so I, I knew about the Umwelt idea, idea and I knew it was going to be the central idea of the book. Um, and, and it sort of was clear early on that the, the obvious way to structure the book is by um, arranging the chapters around particular stimuli, so light and sound and vibrations and so on. Um, but what, one of the lovely things about just delving into a book like this is you really start to understand this con the concept in a deeper way. You know, I think... Um, I, I've been thinking, I've been in, in, interested in this area for a very long time. I remember watching a BBC documentary called Super Senses, um, Super Sense, when I was a kid. Um, and that actually is, 
is the way a lot of people think about the senses, right? The animals become uh, interesting when their senses exceed our own, when their eyes are sharper or their noses are more sensitive or their hearing can, can detect frequencies ours can't, our ears can't hear. Those are all interesting. But I don't think that the sensory worlds of animals have value only when they surpass ours. Um, I think they have value just in, in their own right because they are so very different. And that's why I said quite early on in the book that um, An Immense World is a book about diversity, not superiority. It, it's about those differences that I think are fascinating. And there are many examples in which we have animals in the book of animals that whose senses um, are actually less sophisticated than ours, but are, but also in a very, very interesting way um, that, that I think is still worth thinking about and, 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 um, and understanding. Mm, yeah, it's true of many books, but this was a particular example where I could tell I was annoying everyone around me because I was just like, oh my God, first insects were deaf and mallards can see panoramically. And then it was like, the one about the caterpillar scraping their bums to attract other people to a party. I was like, could you use this for the next gathering? Those are all kind of bits that are like so compelling, but obviously ladder up to this idea of like, as you talk about not being able to, you know, birds being able to see in a whole colour spectrum that isn't available to us. You know, it's almost unimaginable. And I think, you know, partly the temptation is for humans to say, oh God, can you imagine that? But you're again at pains early on to say this isn't about anthropomorphizing the animals, nor is it about trying to put our human lens, and it is a lens because we're very visual, onto these things. So what did you, what do you hope to achieve by having people think about these? Because you say it's impossible to imagine being a bat or an octopus or an amoeba. In some ways, it's hard to even imagine being someone that isn't you. So what did you, what do you want a reader to do from this? Um, what do you want them to be doing while they're thinking about it? What do you want them to be changed with at the end of reading? Well, so, um, you know, as uh, going back to what you, you said earlier, um, I, I do hope that the book is so like relentlessly fascinating that it turns people into either the best or the worst dinner party guests in, in the world. <laughs> you know, I, I, I deliberately wrote it so that every page, maybe every paragraph is full of at least one like knockout um, tidbit of knowledge. But I, I think more than just like being a parade of facts and trivia, um, I really wanted the book to stoke a sense of joy and wonderment about the world. You know, I want people to to feel um, this almost trippy sense that the creatures around them are sort of more magical than they thought and that the world around them is is um, richer and more profound than they thought. You know, I think um, the, the subtitle of the book speaks to this, how, how animal senses reveal the hidden realms around us. You know, when I walk my dog, um, Typo, along the street by watching him sniff you know i understand that these these streets are full of information that i don't detect with my nose and that they are constantly changing even though to my eyes they're just the same or boring neighborhoods that i've seen um a thousand times over if you think about the way albatrosses smell like what looks like featureless ocean now becomes like this rolling topography of odor um, if you think about insects that sit on um, plants and send vibrations um, through those plants, you understand that a quiet meadow is actually thrumming with song and uh, and signal. Um, so there are so many aspects of the world that seem um, mundane and familiar and, and sort of quiet and still that are actually full of information and, and full of full of wonderment and, and awe. And, and I think that's what I want people to sort of understand that um, I, I want them to come away with this sort of changed view of the reality around them, even like some of the most familiar aspects of it. Um, and, you know, I think that at its core, the book is a call for more empathy 
um, you know, as you said, it, it's very hard to to um, put yourself in the perspective of even another person. And like arguably a lot of our biggest problems at the moment um, stem from that you know, catastrophic empathy failure. Um, I think it is even harder then to imagine what it would be like to be a bat or an elephant or a whale or, or, or what have you. Um, but I think that um, empathy is a muscle and we can build it. And by trying hard, making effortful work to take on the perspectives of other creatures, um, you know, we become a little bit more predisposed to stepping out of our own shoes and, and imagining what the world is like to others. Mm, mm, absolutely. And I think this idea, you know, people are sticking microphones on leaves and they're, they're putting hair removal cream on bats. Like they're doing all sorts of weird stuff. But the idea is that, you know, if we were suddenly able to hear this frequency of sound or see this spectra of light, that the world would be totally different. Um, that, like you say, is trippy. You kind of sit there like, oh, hang on. And then, I, you know, I saw some ducks the other day and I was like trying to imagine them eyeballing me from behind. I was like, how can they see everything? Like, but also I think point towards the end of the book, how, you know, what we think is innocuous, like, oh, let's have some strip lights here or let's make sure, you know, we've illuminated this car park so people don't trip over. Is actually kind of oral noise and it's disturbing, you know, the natural way that, you know, turtles want to lay their eggs or birds migrate. So tell us a bit about this kind of, it's a real call to arms, it feels like at the end for like just being aware of these other sensory bubbles and how we can at least not be popping them all the time and try and coexist in a better way. Yeah, it's that classic planet Earth move, isn't it? Where we, you spend like several episodes showing you how, showing people how wondrous things are on in the world. And then in the last episode, you're like, and it's all doomed. Um, yeah, the, the, um, the, the final chapter is about this concept of sensory pollution, the idea that we have flooded the world with light and sound and other stimuli that are, um, you know, distracting and diverting and, and befuddling the other animals around us, often with fatal and, and detrimental results. Um, and this is a huge problem and that one that paradoxically we um, we ignore, right? which should be obvious to us. So we should be able to see, we, we can see the light, we can see the sound, we can hear the sound, but we don't think of these things as pollutants. Um, you know, we think of them as just average normal parts of our lives. But in, in doing that, um, we are forcing other animals to live in our umbelt rather than theirs. Um, so uh, lights at night, um, you know, are breaking this billions of years uh, long streak um, of uh, regular cycles of light and darkness. Um, lights at night attract um, pollinating insects away from the flowers they're meant to service. Uh, they can pull baby hatchling turtles up a beach with fatal results and away from the ocean. They can waylay migrating birds, forcing them to go on these distracting pit stops at a time when they need all the energy they can get. Noise pollution does something similar. Uh, you know, noise in um, otherwise pristine wild areas can push animals out of habitats they need. It can drown out the calls that they use to communicate, um, to sound alarms, to find mates. Uh, light and sound actually have quite substantial effects on a lot of the species around us, and they make parts of nature that would otherwise be, be great for animals to be um, very hard to, to live in and to tolerate. Um, but the, the, the neat thing about sensory pollution is that unlike uh, other more familiar kinds of pollution, unlike things like a, 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 you know, a raised rainforest or a bleached coral reef or plastics floating in the ocean or um, pesticides building up in the, in the environment, these um, sensory pollution 
doesn't last. You know, it, you can switch it off. It's actually quite a, uh, a, a, re- a relatively easy thing to fix if we had the societal and political will to do so. And I think ha- building up that will um, requires us to actually understand that this is a problem in the first place, which requires us to step out of our sensory bubble and into the unveiling of other species. And that's what the final chapter of the book is about. Like we, this. Um, this ability to understand the umwelt of another creature is a, a very human thing. You know, it's possible that we're, it seems to me likely that we're the only species on the earth that's capable of doing that. You know, we, um, I might not ever know what it is like to be a bat, but at least I can ask the question and I can get some way towards answering that. And that ability is a gift and it comes with a profound responsibility i think to really think hard about these other um worlds uh, and to try and preserve and and care for them Mm, absolutely i think again it's the idea that yeah something that seems innocuous to some species isn't to others very good so we've heard a bit about typo i have to ask is this typo on the front it is typo on the front. Um, yep. Did I write this entire book just as a convoluted ploy to get my dog on the cover? Can't can't comment. He is also. Well, if you didn't, you'd be a monster. Let's be honest. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Is typo grateful for his newfound fame? He seems a little bit nonplussed, to be honest. Um, but he does feature throughout the book, um, and he's uh, in the nice photos spread in the middle. Um, and yeah, he, I, I got typo, um, last January. So he's very much a pandemic puppy. Um, and I actually got him after writing the bit in the book about smell and about dogs, um, which was nice because I, Mm. I got to apply everything that I wrote about in that, um, in, in raising him, you know, we try and make sure that, um, whenever we go and walks, um, at least once a day, um, he gets one walk that is completely his to control and, and to, um, and to, uh, set the pace for and when he gets to control a walk what he does is sniff like he he walks slowly you know he's he's not intent on getting anywhere he wants to explore the world around him with his nose he explores plants he explores like railings and fire hydrants and you know he, he explores everything um and it's quite delightful watching him do this because you know, like I said, to, to me, these are um, streets and, and areas that I have seen thousands of times over. They seem like pretty unchanging to me. They'll change from one season to the next, but certainly not from like an hour to one hour to the other. Mm-hmm. But to his nose, they absolutely do. Um, you know, I've compared um, his sniffing uh, to me, like checking my Instagram and Twitter. Um, you know, it's it's a very... <laughs> It's very social activity. You know, I, I look at Instagram and I can see what all my friends have been doing over the last like 24 hours. Um, that's what he gets when he sniffs. You know, he knows where all the other neighborhood dogs have been. Um, you know, he, he probably gets an idea of what they're, what they're up to, you know, what sort of condition they're in. Um, he can get all of that social information with his nose. Um, and I, I think that's kind of, that's sort of, that's wonderful. And, and you know, we, we know through... Um, who were interesting work on dog cognition that um, dogs um, tend to be happier. They're more 
and they're less anxious, more optimistic if they're given a chance to use their nose. And, and often, like a lot of dog owners, don't give them that chance. You know, you, you see people like pulling their dogs along because the walk is seen as a, just a, simply a form of exercise rather than a, or, or a means of getting from A to B. Um, you know, I've seen dog owners pull their dogs away from like sniffing other dogs' genitals, which you know, to, if, if a human did that, it would be really weird. But for a dog, it's completely normal. It's a very social way of uh, uh, get you know of look of exploring another dog it's like two humans looking each other in the face um so yeah i think even for the animals that are closest to us if we ignore their sensory world if we ignore their umwelt then we can sometimes um you know pull them or deprive them of this very important part of their lives mm, we have a footpath down the side of the garden here and the other day i just had someone say Oh, you flipping dirty sniff. And I dragged this dog away. And now I think if I hear that again, I'm going to be like, excuse me, sir. Do you know? Because like, you do, it is one of those things. And I quite often see my cat smell something and do that kind of ah face. And then I, now I know that she's opening her mouth to close her nostrils to get it to the other organ that we don't have that is super useful for smell. And now I know what's happening with that. So I do think there's something really wonderful about, you know, looking at nature, but the animals that we live with as well, we're like, I get you now. I get you a tiny bit more. And I love that. Uh, absolutely. You know, that that line, like, all you do is sniff, like, yes, because it's a dog. <laughs> that... <laughs> That, you know, it's, right. It's like saying it's like saying to a person, like all you do is look at stuff. Stop thinking and looking. What are you? Just some eyes on legs. Um, talking about eyes on legs. What is it? The tarsiers that have eyes bigger than their brain. Than their brains. Yes. Um, so yeah, the tarsiers are these uh, these little primates that look a bit, a bit like gremlins. They've got giant eyes that are larger than their brains and that give them um, excellent vision even at night. Um, and uh, and the, the weird thing about them is that they're not even the largest eyes in the world. So the largest eyes in the world belong to the giant squid, um, which have eyes uh, as large as, mm, I nearly said soccer balls, meaning in America too long, nearly as they're large as footballs. Um, and they are notable not only because they're huge, but because they're so much bigger than the next biggest eyes, which belong to things like swordfish. So, the, the, you know, a, a few scientists I talked to were, were sort of fascinated by this question, like not just why are giant squid eyes so big, but why are they so much bigger than literally everything else? And the answer seems to be that eyes of that size um, are really only good for seeing one specific kind of light, which is a distributed set of point. Of, of like um, of pinprick lights, like say a star field, um, in in other in in what would otherwise be blackness, um, and for a giant squid, that's really useful because that allows them to see sperm whales that are their main predators. Like in the deep of the ocean, there's no light. The only light comes from bioluminescent animals that make their own flashes. If a sperm whale is charging at a giant squid, it disturbs those animals and creates like a kind of sparkly outline. And that seems to be what a giant squid, giant squid's disproportionately massive eye has evolved to detect. I just love this idea that, like in the in in a place with almost no light, the largest eye in the world has evolved to detect the outline of a sparkling whale. It, I mean, it, the part about the deep sea. I don't know very much about ocean life. I'm reading it. I wasn't feeling claustrophobic, but I really felt like I was there. And you describe like. At this depth, you can see this. And I was like, not any further, not any further. And then you get to the bottom and it's just like the freakiest stuff. And you're like, 
you know, just a blob with, it hasn't bothered with eyes. I don't need eyes. To me, it's just like, it is mind blowing to think about, you know, you can think about evolution as being extremely logical and kind of a system. But the idea that these things are happening in different places, in different ways. So what was the one about the hearing evolving a number of separate times? in different branches where you just like, and it goes away and comes back and you're, what? Yeah, it's, I think um, this whole field, like well, everything I write about in this book is, is testament to the like messy, chaotic creativity of evolution. You know, there, there really mm. isn't a plan that it isn't like a march towards progress. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of like bootstrapping solutions based on like historical, uh, his, you know, based on the, the, um, the, the randomness of history. Um, there's a lot of trade-offs, you know, so, uh, every sense comes with trade-offs. Animals can do amazing things, but they're limited in other ways. Um, and, and I think it, it shows um, I think it sort of shows evolution at its finest, you know, what, like what, um, so you, just to take an example, um, you, you mm. talked about, um, about hearing. Um, so, so one of the, one of the really interesting things I think about hearing is that it's, it's really not necessary. Like a, a lot of insects can't hear. Um, and we, it's, it's weird to us, right? We, th we think of sound as being quite important. Obviously a lot of people are deaf and get on just fine without, um, a, a sense of hearing, but I think like, one assumes that like, you know, with that's framed as a disability, we think of like hearing sound as being crucial, but actually a large number of animals, maybe the majority of animals don't mm. do it. And those, and when insects do it, what happens is they build ears in all kinds of weird body parts. They have ears on their knees, they have ears on their abdomens, they have ears, um, some butterflies have ears on their wings. Praying mantis has one single cyclopean ear in the middle of its <laughs> chest. Um, and that's part, that partly the reason for that is that the ears evolve from these other organs that typically sense like the insect's body position. So in the same way that like if I close my eyes, I know where my arms are. Um, and an insect has that same kind of sense, proprioception of like what its body is doing at any moment. The sensors that do that uh, the the, um, the scent organs that do that are distributed all over their bodies and are very easy to turn into ears, um, which is why ears just sort of crop up everywhere. Um, and, you know, again, like we think of ears as two things on our heads. It's just two of them. They're right here. But no, they don't. They don't have to be. Mm. You can you can build an ear out of lots of other body parts and they can show up in lots of weird places. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super 
super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Ultimately, forward is the only direction that we can go. And I think that anybody who offers the view into the future, whether it's a, a justified or something that's that's fantastical, really does settle us and reduces our anxiety uh, so that we can imagine where we're going to be. Thanks to huge leaps forward in science and technology, we can now predict the future with more accuracy than any time in history, not just the next year, but the next 500. We can spot threats and, in some cases, fend them off. From climate to biotech, AI to astronomy, experts are now able to speak with unprecedented authority about what will actually happen in the future. That's where the Ytree Futureverse comes in. In this new series from Intelligence Squared and Ytree, we bring you the conversations, ideas and insights that are driving change and shaping our future. The best way to predict the future is to make it. So people out there in the laboratories, in the field, you know, making the new technologies, those are the people we should be asking what the future is going to be. You know, we talk about the great resignation of young people leaving companies, but more and more CEOs are stepping aside and saying, actually, I want to work for companies and organizations that are purpose-driven. And in 50 years time, it is my generation, the climate generation, who are going to be in these seats of power. So I absolutely have hope Drawing on the expertise of artists, scientists, financial experts, and climate activists, the Futureverse is at the forefront of the world's most crucial issues and questions. Subscribe to the Futureverse on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The past is in your head, the future is in your hands. Also, just to say, the book is hilarious, especially the footnotes. I'm a huge footnote fan. So the bit, another bit I read out to my poor husband was this part about the guy who is studying tree hoppers. And these are the guys that vibrate on leaves. He tried to work out what different vibrations are for by recording them. And then he plays them back to tree hoppers to see what they do. Absolutely fair enough. And then your footnote says, his sister once told a friend about this. And the friend said, he lies to bugs. And I just thought, that is... Like if you had to explain to somebody who doesn't know what science is, especially natural history research, you'd say, yeah, I, I put IMAC on a bat and I make it nice and silky smooth and then I fly it in a cave and sometimes I throw flour at it. All of this stuff is amazing. My point, because there is a point, is that you do a really great job. And I know this throughout your whole career, right from the beginning, you do a great job of getting across the human side of science. The science is a messy process. It's full of annoying bits, mundanity, repetition, annoyance, struggle joy, serendipity, but competition. There's a lot of beef towards the end of the book with certain fields. So why is it important for you in a book like this to do that? Because you could just as easily tell all the amazing facts and explore all the science without having to say, Bobby went in his Jeep and threw a net out and Sandra did this. So yeah, why is that important? I, I think for a few reasons, it, you know, it feels incomplete to me to not reveal how we know this stuff. Like The, the story of um, how this knowledge was acquired is as much part of um, our understanding of the senses 
as it, you know, as all the stuff that, about the animals themselves. Um, partly, I think the scientists often act as wonderful gateways because they're so curious and so passionate about uh, about these creatures. And, you know, the, a lot of that is stripped out of their, the papers that they publish. So if I wrote a book simply just by reading the papers, I miss out a lot about um, how how they got uh, how they got to know the stuff they know, but also like how they think about it. You know, if you ask a, a researcher, like, how do you think an electric fish senses the world? They I guarantee you they'll have an answer to that. And that answer won't be in any of the, the textbooks or the papers that they write. And, and that answer is fascinating to me. It, it helps you go on this journey of imagination. And it makes like what could be a little bit abstract feel more concrete. You know, and just like one of the... Um, one of the best ways of getting people excited, interested in something is to get them interested in the people who are interested in that thing. And, you know, that was a very important thing in my first book, I Can Say Multitudes. Um, it's still an important thing here in an immense world. Um, it, it's, a, it's a really good way of, like, pulling people into this world slowly. Um, and then also, I think, just because um, they bring a lot of joy and character to this, um, you know, the... Um, making the book um, funny uh, and, and joyful was, was a really important part of the, the process for me. Um, and, and, and I think the, the senses are, the topic itself is really rich. It's really beautiful. It's sometimes ludicrous because animals are like inherently a little bit absurd sometimes. You know, they do daft, ridiculous things, but they also do beautiful, profound things. And I think that the writing sort of has to, to live up to that promise. It has to capture both sides of it. You know, I, I, think, um, I think of nature um, as, as having these two extremes. And some of my favorite nature writing does, does sort of oscillate between them. It captures the, the, the ridiculousness of it, but also just the, the immense beauty of it. Yeah, I think it's true. I think there's something about people that study animals. I have a friend who studies moths and just watched moths having <laughs> moths having sex for about four years. And during COVID, they had to bring all the moths home to their house. And I was like, I am not going in that room. But it was like you described going into that spider room full of cobwebs. The moth room was not good. To which I will ask, you have done some things for this book. Hand in electric eel tank. We should at this point say do not put your hand in any tanks. Um, what was your, I would say, favourite field trip or favourite kind of hands-on experience? Oh, um, so uh, I had a really, f I, so a, a couple like stand out in my mind. Uh, so Liz and I went um, to uh, somewhere in California uh, and went like tromping around searching for rattlesnakes um, uh, which is usually not really something one does. Usually people uh, walk in the opposite direction of, of a rattlesnake, but we tried to find them. Um, and it was kind of a de delightful experience. Like it, it um, you know, it, uh, it was an unseasonably cold morning. We were told um, by the researcher who, who led us on this trip that uh, morning's a good time. The snakes are usually out there basking in the sun, but this was very cold and gray and the snakes were hidden. They were quite hard to find. But that's sort of the point. You know, I was writing this chapter about heat, about the ways these snakes sense the body heat of their prey. And, you know, just this experience just drives home, like how closely the lives of reptiles is tied to 
the temperature of their surroundings. The temperature is, it matters a huge amount to them. And there, there were just lots of little moments like that where um, like the, the themes that I was trying to explore in the book came out through these, um, through these little mini adventures. You know, I, you, you mentioned um, the, uh, uh, Beth Mortimer, the scientist who uh, studies spiders. Uh, when I went to visit her, I asked her, like, can I go see your spiders? And I thought she would take me into like a, a small room, you know, maybe there'd be a shelf <laughs> with some spiders like in, in small, small terraria. Instead, she takes me into this like giant hangar with a huge steel door like leading into it. And we're in this cavernous room with like uh, several dozen free ranging spiders that are each like the size of my ear with like a meter with meter wide webs. And there are flies buzzing all around for the spiders to eat. Um, and uh, and I'm just sitting there with like flies landing in my hair and my like pen and my notepad. And um, Beth is just beaming and like rhapsodizing about how wonderful she thinks spiders are. Um, and I'm like, I'm watching her and I'm looking at everything else. And I just, I just sort of have this profound realization that like, you know, to the spiders, um, we might as well not be there. Like to, to our whole, our presence in the room really comes down to our voices um, creating vibrations in the web or, or the flies landing on the web and buzzing in their struggles. Um, if a fly spot flies over the spider's head, you know, the spider probably doesn't care. The fly, meanwhile, um, uh, you know, probably can't see the fine silken threads of the spider's webs, which is why they blunder into them. We, the humans with the sharp eyes, can see the, the strands of the webs. We can see the fly. We can't feel the vibrational world in the room in the way the spiders can. Um, and I was just sort of sitting there like with flies everywhere, just thinking about like the, <laughs> the, 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 the core of the book, right? You can be sharing the same room with these other creatures and have radically different experiences of it. Um, and, and I had many such moments um, throughout, reporting the, uh, throughout reporting the book where I went to places to meet scientists and to have like interesting, you know, one-on-ones with them. But really what I got away with it was, was a chance to actually think hard about the, the lies and the, the unburden of the um, creatures that those, those scientists study, um, which was just, uh, just wonderful. I hope it makes for a more entertaining read for people who pick up the book. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind spiders. I'm not an arachnophobe, but even reading that, it was difficult. There were a few moments where it, it was difficult in a great way because, like, you want to take people to those places, and you definitely did. So there was a, a, a little joke amongst science writers back in the day that your Twitter handle, Edjong209, represented the fact there were at least 208 other Edjongs doing all the mountains of work. So ever since I've known you, you've been, like, so prolific, and it's, like, all gold. So it's not just like, oh, he's churned out a load of whatever again. But the question is, like, so you win a Pulitzer last year. There's, like the world's biggest health emergency going on, which you're covering with, you know, incredible sensitivity, deep reporting. Um, you know, I work on investigations. I know how long this stuff takes. I know how hard it is. I know what it takes out of people. And obviously bearing witness to all the healthcare workers and the the doom and gloom and the struggle has been immense. So just how do you fit a book in with covering a pandemic, winning a Pulitzer? And after all of this, what is giving you hope? Now that we're hopefully moving away from at least the most acute stages of the pandemic. That's about 15 questions in one. So pick the bits you want. So it helped that I was halfway done with the book um, uh, before the pandemic started. I was actually on book leave and I was meant to meant to finish uh, the, the manuscript in, I think, August 2020. And I stopped halfway through to start covering COVID for The Atlantic. 
um, and then took a break at the start of 2021 to write the second half of the book. Um, and, I, you know, I've joked before that um, I'm probably the only person in the world who took who decided to write half a book for a mental health break. Um, but that's exactly what it felt like, you know, covering covering COVID is, is just so miserable and so difficult that um, that I was, you know, pretty shredded at the end of 2020. And, um, and it, it really helped to think about something joyful. Um, I feel that now, you know, I'm like two and a half years later, I'm more burnt out than I was then. Um, but, you know, doing, doing events like this and thinking about the book and getting to talk about the book does make, um, uh, does, does make my life a bit better. Um, you know, I'm still covering the pandemic. I think there are still um, long-lasting consequences of everything we've been through. The health systems of multiple countries are in, in a bad state. Um, there are long haulers who are still suffering. Um, and I think we, um, you know, certainly the US and I think other countries have made choices that will make it less well prepared for future variants and future viruses. I did just write a piece for The Atlantic about what gives me hope in that context. And, and partly yeah. what gives me hope is that um, there is a wave of um, newly minted um, activist groups who are pushing hard for better pandemic preparedness, better precautions, um, all the stuff that a lot of um, a lot of governments and, and a lot of um, political voices have move, have decided to, to move past. I, I don't think we can yet. I think there are still a lot of vulnerable people at risk. And this sort of speaks to the empathy point I was, I was talking about earlier. You know, I think that um, we absolutely do need to put ourselves in the shoes, not only of other animals, but of other people with less privilege and, mm. and less, um, uh, you know, um, uh, less uh, who are more vulnerable than, than we are. Um, I think that's what this phase of the, the pandemic demands of us. Um, and it gives me hope that there are still people who are pushing for that, that they are um, vocal, they're, they're numerous, um, and they are and they are committed. Um, and, you know, I think, I think actually, this is going to sound a little self-serving, but I think that um, the, the fact that the book actually has had a really nice reception gives me a bit of hope. Um, you know, I, I was actually, I, I wasn't sure whether people would want to read about this, to be honest. Um, you know, the the first book that I wrote, I Contain Multitudes, was was a, a, a natural history book, sort of with a with a human health coat to it. And actually it was the natural history stuff that I, I was most interested in. Um, and and an immense world doesn't have that coat at all. You know, it, it's um, the, the, the promise of the book is not, you know, how you're going to make your yourself live longer or be smarter or, or anything like that. It's really just, uh, you know, you're going to look at the world in a different way. Um, and, and I wasn't sure whether that would be something that people would be into. But um, people do seem to be into it. The, the reaction has been, has been lovely. Um, mm. And I've been really especially thrilled that, like, a lot of the reviews and, and early press... Uh, has, from, has been from people who not only like liked the book, but do sort of get it. You know, they they mm. kind of get the the themes and the the um, the ideas and and the calls um, in it, and and that that makes me that makes me happy. It means it makes me feel like this work can still make a difference um, in these like dark and uncertain times. Yeah, absolutely. I think in a way, it's not escapism because we don't necessarily want to escape, and we are. It's all part of what we are and where we're at. But there's something about remembering we're part of a bigger network of living things on the planet. But also I think, you know, some of the side effects of COVID, like losing our taste and losing your sense of smell, it does have slightly brought back into people's minds how much we rely on, you know, smell to help with our sense of taste and things like that. 
And so to a listener question, this is the one I was going to ask, but I, I couldn't find a way of asking it. But this lovely lady, Stella, thanks so much for the talk. If you could have one, we've called it extrasensory here, but I think we mean beyond the human senses. What would the power be? Just to say, Stella, mine would be the magnetic thing because I have no sense of direction. So I'm going for magnets. Okay. Um, my, I feel like my answer to this question changes all the time. Um, I have previously said uh, the magnetic stuff. Uh, so, you know, some animals have a kind of biological compass that allows them to, to migrate over long distances. Uh, sadly, it doesn't, doesn't work too well over shorter distances. It wouldn't be very good for, like, getting home, but it would be very good if getting mm -hmm. home meant, like, traveling across continents. Um, I've talked about uh, sensing electric fields. It would be really interesting doing what sharp can do, like finding hidden prey um, by detecting the, the electric signals that they inevitably give off. Um, uh, I talked about dolphin echolocation, which can see through living tissue. You know, dolphin um, uh, echolocating on you can probably um, perceive your skeleton inside your body. Um, I think the answer I want to give today is, is just a, 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 the same kind of sense of smell that, that my dog has. I think it would actually be really interesting to, um, you know, follow him on the street and, and understand what it is that he's paying attention to, what it is that, you know, he's perceiving. And being able to step into his world like more directly um, would, I don't know, may, maybe give me a, a newfound appreciation for his life. You would have to explain why you were sniffing other dogs' bits and pieces, though. Okay, uh, let's say an additional question. Uh, it says here, are there ways in which science can help humans acquire new sensory powers? Or oh, I like the idea of a sensory power. Mm. So I originally, it's in my book proposal, I had a plan of doing a chapter about this, um, mm. about ways in which technology can expand our own senses. And I ultimately decided against it because um, part of the, the thesis of the book is that it's actually very hard um, and and you can do some, you know, you, you can get a little way, you know, you've got like gloves and vests that can give um, uh, people, you know, who are blind, like tactile information that might sort of mm. approach something like echolocation. But like, you know, I, I found myself like uninspired by a lot of the examples that I saw and was reading about. And actually, there are there are many cases in which we simply can't do it. Um, you know, you talked about um, a mallard's like wraparound vision, right? So you might imagine like you could put on some kind of virtual reality headset that would give you something close to that. But even then, you're not get you're not going to get it, right? You you could you could like you could put on a headset that took like the image of what's behind you and put it in in a place you can see, but they were still going to be mapping that onto the forward facing eyes that you have. There's no headset that's going to push your eyes to the side of your head and give you true wraparound vision. Similarly, like birds, most birds can see like a hundred times more colors than we can see. You can't, you can't represent that with a human visual palette. Like you could take one of those colors maybe and recolor what we're, what we're seeing in our environment with like the bits that look like this new color to a bird. But you can't do that for all of the colors they can see because, you know, like four into three simply won't go um mm -hmm. so th there there are a lot of these things are actually impossible for us to achieve um the only and that takes us back to the importance of imagination like the, the only way of truly experiencing what these animals are experiencing is to you know is to is to try and imagine it um you know, like there's a the the Netflix had a great series called Night on Earth, which showed like uh, was just talking about like nocturnal animals, and like you could. 
put on night vision goggles, right? Like, and and get a sense of what it look, means to see the world crisply in total darkness. But even then, that's not really going to tell you what it's like to be a nocturnal animal, being able to move around with full confidence in the middle of the night. No, I think you're right. And the thought I was running the other day, I did think it would be good to have eyes in the back of my head. But then, yeah, how would you understand it? Another question from Imogen. How or did writing the book make you think differently about animal rights and welfare? Oh, gosh, tough question. Um, Right. So I think that um, there's actually a whole chapter about animal pain about um, the whether uh, whether animals feel pain or not, but more specifically, like how they they feel pain. Um, the, the question of pain is is difficult because you know as as, as Imogen hints at, like this is a sense that has huge implications for how we treat animals, like experimentation, um, you know, for, for farming, all the rest, um, and because of that, um, we tend to collapse this. I, the, uh, the, the study and understanding of animal pain into this very simple questions. Do they feel it or not? Yes, no. As if the answer really could be um, restricted to a yes or a no. And, and actually, it, it doesn't. You know, there's a huge amount of variety here, as there is with other senses. Um, you know, so there are, there are um, animals that shrug off things that we would find intensely painful. Like birds, for example, can't, um, don't react to um, capsaicin, which is the substance that, make chili, that makes chilies hot. Um, and uh, there are other kinds of animals that feel pain in a very different way. A, a squid, if you injure it on part of its body, will will probably feel that pain, but it won't have a sense of like where the pain is localized. You know, it's as if I would stub my toe, and suddenly my entire body becomes very hypersensitive to touch. Um, so even here, there is a lot of variation in what animals experience. And I think that the, the sort of crude question um, glosses over um, some uh, our, our ability to truly get at what animals are, are feeling. But I also feel like this question of, you know, do, do animals feel pain or not? It is not really the sort of central animating question to the factor to deciding like how well we should treat them. Like whether you think like a fish experiences pain in a very like human, um, human uh, like way, or whether you ex- think it experiences like something much simpler and more reflexive. Like I happen to believe that the former is much closer to the truth. But regardless of that, there are very good reasons to you know avoid as much suffering as possible to try and give the animals. Ex- uh, as, as, as good an experience of the world as possible. Um, so, yeah, I, I think um, in some ways it, in some ways it was interesting to explore this, but I'm not sure like my, my feelings of, of wanting to treat animals um, humanely uh, has, has massively changed by, by doing this. You know, it's, I think it's more about that. That's like trying to evoke that sense of curiosity and empathy about uh, what the experiences of other creatures. Mm. And to follow on from that, I, you know, we've touched on this a little bit. Um, Ravi's asked, has any of the research you've done for the book given you a perspective on humans who are neurodivergent as an example of appreciating others' umwelts? Yeah, very much so. I, I note in the introduction that actually a lot of the sensory biologists who I talked to and who are sort of big names in this field are neurodivergent themselves. You know, they have, um, they also like in terms of their senses, they have, um, they they might be what you would consider atypical. So a lot of them like are colorblind, for example. Um, there's someone who has 
prosopagnosia, you, uh, face blindness, where you can't recognize other people's faces. It's quite a lot of examples of people who fit this bill. And um, one of the, the folks I talked to, Sonke Janssen, uh, made this point that maybe this um, the difference in their perception gives them um, a more natural inclination to, to think about ways in which other animals may be different than ours. And because they're so used to have their, their sensory worlds being a little atypical, um, there are definitely ways in which the human umwelt varies considerably from one person to another. Um, you know, uh, uh, there's in the chapter about echolocation. There's a long section where I meet um, uh, uh, where I talk about people who can echolocate. And I meet a man named Daniel Kish who is blind who can echolocate very, very well. Not as well as a bat, certainly, but um, he has a very independent life, and a lot of that is because of his ability to echolocate. So yeah, I, I think that um, part of the our um, our tendency to uh, to to um, think about the world solely through the human umbelt also treats the human umbelt as if it was like one thing. It was uh, it's actually if you read a lot of the writing about the senses, there's a lot of like insidious ableism there. There's there's a lot of like humans are a visual species. Full stop. And like millions of people are absolutely not right. But millions of people mm -hmm. get on very well with that vision. Um, you know, so. The, the book is a call to recognize the diversity in the animal kingdom, but also the diversity in humans ourselves. Mm, yeah, I think that it comes back, like you say, to the empathy part, whether it's somebody with long COVID, whether it's somebody who's neurodivergent. Um, I think it's, it, it, it really is thought-provoking thought um, in a really beautiful way. Benji has asked, is there anything we can do as individuals about the kind of light and sound pollution we talked about damaging animals' behaviour? I think obviously reading the book and understanding it is one thing. And also just to say, if you've got any more questions, ping them in. We've still got five golden minutes for questions. Yeah, you know, I, I think the answer is... Sure, there, there are things we could do. You know, I try and turn off lights at night if I can. Uh, I try, you know, I, when I go into like natural spaces, I try and be quiet. Um, but I, I think the real answer here is that the big wins in the space are regulatory. Like this is a political matter, um, and this is another common thread with um, my reporting on COVID. Like one of the biggest mistakes in the pandemic is treating it as a problem for a bunch of individuals to solve on their own. Um, whereas really, this is, a, this is a political matter. This is a matter of the structures and systems in our worlds that need to change. And similarly, you know, for um, for dealing with light and noise pollution, it's not down to a bunch of people just turning their, you know, switching the lights in their homes off or like, you know, slowing down when they're driving on the streets. Like what we need are policies that actually like, get vehicles to move more slowly including like ships cars and, and the like that that um right. uh that uh you know restrict the amount of lights that public buildings can shine at night that, that change the wavelengths of the bulbs that we're using to wavelengths that are less harmful to other animals um you know this is this is uh the the problem is something that is only really going to be solved by large-scale action um, you know, I think the, you know, the, and the sort of individual scale, one of the most important things we can do is to start talking about this, being more aware of it and to push for more action at bigger scale. And the same applies to things like climate change. You know, it's not like it's not like we're just going to like individually recycle our way out of this. It's not like we're just going to like, um, you know, like um, our, our choices certainly matter. But, um, you know, this is a problem for all of society to 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 reckon with. Lovely. Yeah, absolutely. The the um, parallels to climate change are really striking. 
um, this is a bit of an editor question, so forgive me. Was there anything you couldn't fit in the book that you wanted to, or like that one last anecdote or the one trip that never quite came off, or maybe that's for the next book? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, there, there were actually quite a few reporting trips that I wanted to do that were um, that were nixed by COVID. I did most of the ones that I wanted to do, but, you know, I, I'd like um, dreams of, uh, visit, you know, visiting like a falconry center and watching like people fly birds of prey watching them like how they behave you know i wanted to like um uh you know watch um sage grouse courting in in the u.s they're they're beautiful ridiculous birds and they're being harmed by noise pollution too um so lots of you know i wanted uh, i wrote about scallops in the book i wanted to go and actually watch some scallops and look at their eyes myself um so uh you know, i wanted to look, look a scallop in the eye um <laughs> Is the thing I never. Don't we all big dreams, big dreams. Right, exactly. Right. Look, it's been a hard pandemic for everyone. I, I've I've suffered too. Uh, you do you. It's fine. So um, it's been uh, so some of that uh, some of that had to get postponed, um, but uh, I think most of the best, you know, all the best stuff is is in the book. Um, there are very few things that I, I found out about and I had to cut. Um, so yeah, I, I think. The book could be like 10 or 20 times the length that it currently is. Um, it's, you know, it's already quite long, but there's so much in each of these, um, uh, in each of these senses, in each of these topics, in each of these stories that, that I could tell um, in, instead. And, um, you know, I, I hope that um, reading it instills people enough curiosity to want to find out more about the lives of all the creatures they're in. Yeah, I mean, I was Googling like you wouldn't believe. I want to see a picture of this animal. I want to understand this. I want to just double check. It's one of those things where every little kind of fact can get, spin you out somewhere else in a, in a brilliant way. It's been wonderful, Ed. Thank you so much for your time. Congrats again on an absolute killer book. Really hope the rest of your book chats go well. And I just want to say thanks again to Ed, to the audience and to Intelligence Squared. If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month ad-free listening and early access to currently available via Apple Podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too.